This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Welcome to the show. I woke up this morning with this ditty in my head. Here's to dear old Boston, the home... You're looking at me so quizzically, Dan. Dan Torres. The home of the bean and the cod, where the lodges speak only to cabots, and the cabots speak only to God. Now, those, the cabots and the lodges were actually not the only uh, Brahmin families of Boston. There were also the Lowell's and the Saltonstalls, one of whom is on, one of the descendants of is on the phone with us today and is, well, let's put it this way. The 1960s interrupted a lot of lineages, uh, including the Saltonstalls. Uh, now, many of our listeners, of course, have reasons to go to Boston and to visit the Saltonstall building. And... Well, the Saltonstall we have with us today took a different path. Uh, Steve Saltonstall is the author of a new book, Renegade for Justice, Defending the Defenseless in an Outlaw World. It's a great read. We, Steve, I'm so pleased you could join us today, Attorney Stephen Saltonstall. I'd like to begin, if I might, by asking you to give us a sense of what your book sounds like. Uh, and a bit of your family history, and then I want to get to your extraordinary legal career and the cases you've done and the civil rights work that you've and civil rights that work that you engaged in, and the victories you have accomplished. I'd like to start though with well, where you came from, and you have some of that in your book. And well, I love the way it begins, and you tell us a bit about yourself. So because we like to have our listeners hear what a book sounds like, maybe you could read a bit of where the book starts and where your, well, where this story really starts for you. It starts at Exeter in some ways when you were 14 years old. So maybe you could read those couple graphs and then we'll talk. Okay, Bill. Thank you for having me. And let me just say, uh, your legal career is much more important than anything I ever did. So um, no, no, no. We're going to talk about how you and I had the same issue in different cases. And your case ends up at the United States Supreme Court. Mine got as far as the Massachusetts Supreme okay. Judicial Court. There is a difference. Okay, but let's go. Let's hear some of the book. All right. Okay, Bill. At age 14, I was packed off to the Phillips Exeter Academy, located in Exeter, New Hampshire. The school's pretentious Latin motto, Huc venite puri ut weary citus was inscribed in marble over the main building's entrance, and it means, Come hither, boys, that you may become men. At Exeter, becoming a man meant getting a ticket of admission into one of the only three colleges considered of any consequence, Harvard, Yale, or Princeton, in that order of preference. My father made it clear that Harvard was my only acceptable destination. He was class of 1938. His father was class of 1900. As Captain Ahab put it, the path to my fixed purpose is laid with iron rails whereon my soul is grooved to run. Like it or not, Harvard was my white whale. This was in a historical imperative as well. Henry Saltonstall was a member of Harvard's first graduating class, and there has been an unbroken chain of Saltonstalls at Harvard in every generation thereafter. Okay, let's hear the I love this. Let's let's hear the next couple sentences. Oh, okay. I, I uh, all right, sure. 
all began when a member of my family, Richard Saltonstall, arrived in America in 1630 with John Winthrop and the other original members of the Massachusetts Bay Colony on a ship called the Arbella to build what they considered a city upon a hill. Saltonstall was Winthrop's first assistant. After the initial landing in Salem, Saltonstall sailed up the Charles River and founded Watertown, Massachusetts, on the border of what is now Cambridge. Well, your story goes on. I'd like to spend a little bit more on your personal story, if I might. Uh, tell us how you got yourself kicked out of Exeter. Uh, well, I was president of the Student Peace Group, and we agreed... What to, year was this about? Uh, this was 1961, um, and we agreed that we were going to um, hold signs on Academy property, peace signs, as the Memorial Day parade marched by. And I, uh, we, there were, you know, eight or ten members in this peace group. It wasn't terribly popular. Um, and uh, so I showed up with a sign that said, End the arms race, ban the bomb. Uh, and that is what caused my expulsion. By the way, nobody else showed up. Everybody else chickened out. <laughs> and you got thrown out. Congratulations. I did. You, got, I did. you were thrown out of one of the and finest I, prep what, schools in New England. What a relief. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So... I, I would like to know this, and then we're going to get on and talk about, we're going to talk about criminal law, we're going to talk about constitutional law, we're going to talk about the First Amendment. I, I want to uh, know what drove you uh, to become involved uh, at a very early age with the peace movement, with the civil rights movement. What happened? What, what was that trigger? Bill, I really have no idea. My, my parents were liberals, and they were in a kind of a uh, rarefied intellectual set made up of um, Harvard professors like uh, Schlesinger and uh, the uh, Ben and Felicia Kaplan. Ben was on the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts, and you know, I, I they were all extremely liberal people, and I, I even though. Everybody else in my family was a Republican, and we were the black sheep. Okay. So you get yourself thrown out of Exeter. You end up at a progressive, uh, uh, also independent school. Uh, yes. And then weirdness of weirdnesses in this story. For undergraduate, you end up, well, maybe not so weird, at... <laughs> Come on, tell us. Where would you go well, to undergrad, I did. I wound up at Harvard. Uh, <laughs> they predicted I'd have a C average... I did a lot better than that. But it was, you know, Harvard was, I don't know, it was very energy draining uh, and time consuming. I mean, I had to read a book a day, basically, just for the reading, not not for including papers. I'm not complaining. I mean, I got a good education, but, um, you know, there's this feeling at a place like Harvard, or aren't we all such wonderful people, and we're going to uh, rule the world, and everybody else should look up to us. Very similar to Exeter, really. Yeah, yeah. Let, let me ask you this, because uh, we met when you went, uh, you took some years off to uh, engage in extracurricular activities, uh, which you go into in some detail in the book, uh, which I appreciate, and... 
you, after, after, well, had any number of jobs, including a really fascinating story as a gas station attendant, which I really appreciated reading, uh, you end up at Northeastern University School of Law, where we met. Uh, yes, we did. And, I, and, I'm, and I'm proud to say that in my class, class of 1976, I believe it was the first law school class in the country where women outnumbered men. Yeah, Northeastern was an amazing law school, and you write about that in your in your book and how it was really a working class school and a and a law True. school law school for uh, persons who wanted to use the law in in the interest and in service of social justice. That's uh, that's true. I think yeah. Let Let me ask you this. Um, I'm going to read back to you uh, just a couple of sentences from the chapter that is titled "The Outlaw Road and Its Challenges." You say this. Being a bad boy may be fun some of the time, but it isn't always easy, especially when it's your profession. Friends and family are likely to view the job of criminal defense, which is what you engaged in for many, many years, as ethically suspect. And they will pose polite but pointed questions. The perennial favorite being, how can you defend guilty people? Then you go on to say, lawyers like me will recite reflective stock answers, including everyone is entitled to a defense in a fair trial, or I am defending the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, not just a person. Which leads me to something that my wife has said to me on more than one occasion. Yes, yes, I get it. Everyone is entitled to a lawyer, but not necessarily you as their lawyer. So why do you do it? You took taken on some rather extraordinary cases with very unpopular people. What's the motivation here? What's the driving force? Well, some people say uh, criminal defense lawyers are masochists because um, everybody in the courtroom hates them except hopefully their clients. But um, I, 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 well, what, one experience that happened to me is at uh, Thanksgiving I was living in Bennington, Vermont, and pumping gas. Um, my next-door neighbor was... Um, arrested for murder with one of his children. And I felt horribly for this guy. I, he was a very nice person. And on the other hand, um, his significant other, the mother of the children, um, was uh, abusive and yelling and screaming at these kids all the time. And uh, I just had the feeling that they had the wrong person, and it was a, a, a as I understand it, a, they each accused the other, and um, he um, got a life sentence. She wasn't charged, so that really planted a seed. But uh, but also living on the minimum wage um, among other people um, at the bottom end really uh, changed me. Let me ask... Uh, yeah. I, I, just be, I became more sensitive to the plight of uh, poor people and people of color and because I was living with them. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you this. We're going to get to uh, a number of your cases on the other side of the break, but before we do that, there is a chapter titled Fighting to End the Death Penalty in Massachusetts. Could you tell us about your involvement with ending the death penalty in Massachusetts? Well, um, this was a case where the state actually brought um, a challenge of its own to see whether 
the law was constitutional. And uh, with Anne Lambert, who's a, an amazingly uh, great lawyer, who long-time American Civil Liberties Union employee, she and I wrote the brief, and um, uh, we had some novel arguments, uh, that one of which was adopted by the Supreme Court of Massachusetts. But they, the long and the short of it is they, they struck the death penalty statute down. I, hesitate, I have to add, though, Bill, that after that, the voters, uh, the legislature and the voters of Massachusetts changed the Constitution to allow for um, the death penalty. Um, but the Supreme Court of Massachusetts uh, invalidated that constitutional provision. Uh, it's a difficult to understand opinion, but the result was right. We are speaking. I mean, they, yes, I'm sorry, Steve. Let me, let's well, take a break. They, they said stuff like, if if we can't, if the Supreme Court has uh, no ability to deal with the death penalty, uh, the legislature could. Uh, prescribed the death penalty for petty larceny, you know, for stealing some small item from a, a grocery store. And they, they, uh, given that constitutional amendment, they, the legislature could reserve capital punishment for uh, black people and Jews. So they, uh, using this rationale, they said that the uh this constitutional amendment was unenforceable. We are speaking with Stephen Saltonstall. His new book is Renegade for Justice, Defending the Defenseless in an Outlaw World. We are, in fact, going to take a break now. When we come back, I want to talk to Steve about his case, Defending T-Shirts, which went to the United States Supreme Court. I'll have a few words to say about the T-Shirt case from South Hadley, Massachusetts, as well. Then we're going to talk about some murder cases and the environmental law that Steve undertook. We'll be right back. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. 586-1000. Good phone number, right? It's the number Whalen Insurance got when we opened in 1961. It's still our number more than 60 years later. If you need an insurance quote or have a claim, just call 586-1000. We answer the phone, ready to help. That's our pledge to you, until now. Now when you call, we'll answer, and if it's something clerical or routine, like an address change, we're going to transfer you to the Arbella Insurance Call Center in Quincy. You'll be connected with a real person there, too. You won't be entering your policy number on the dial pad. The Arbella Call Center. I told myself Whalen Insurance would never do this. But insurance agent friends all over New England tell me it actually works really well. So we're going to try it. And if it doesn't work well, I'm sure you'll let us know by calling 586-1000. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. In partnership with our Bella Insurance. The holidays. Baking, wrapping, decorating, and of course, shopping for that special gift. Hi, it's Jessica, owner of Fitness Together in Amherst and Northampton. This holiday season, consider giving a private one-on-one -on -one personal training session with a Fitness Together gift card. Stop by our locations, Amherst or Northampton, to pick one up in person. Or give us a call and we'll drop one in the mail. Give a gift that keeps the ones you love fit and healthy. 
Happy holidays from all of us at Fitness Together. I once had a customer who asked us to make a very special fruit basket. I want 25 pounds of bananas, he said, with a note attached that reads, I'm bananas over you. Will you marry me? You know, I've always wondered about their wedding cake. At State Street Market, we make fruit baskets. Of course we do. But just because it's a basket doesn't mean you've got to fill it with fruit. How about a basket filled with but soda pop or microbrews? There are Chardonnay baskets, Merlot, Shiraz. Give us a price range and we'll fetch you a combination of bottles from the wine cellar that'll make someone dizzy with delight. Oh, we do baskets. Local goat cheeses and six kinds of crackers. Cookie baskets based on the cities of the world. Milano, Brussels. We've even put together the ingredients for the perfect minestrone. The fresh vegetables, the spice jar, the pasta. Hey, if you can dream it, State Street can put it in a basket. State Street Deli. State Street Fruit, State Street Wines and Spirits, Northampton. Delivery, too. Want to support the kind of local talk you hear on The Bill Newman Show? Want to hear your business's message here on WHMP? Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. We'll help you craft a marketing message that'll reach listeners of your favorite WHMP show. And we'll be supporting the local news, valley talk, and progressive voices you hear right here on WHMP. Let us know about your message. Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. And add your message to our mission. And hear your message right here on WHMP. Your message at whmp.com. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We are talking with Steve Saltonstall. His new book is Renegade for Justice, Defending the Defenseless in an Outlaw World. I'd like to, I want to, well, so much to ask you about. Maybe we'll have to have you back, Steve, because we're not going to get to all of it today. But you did a number during your career, a number of civil liberties cases, um, and I loved this one, the Cowboy Snodgrass case. In, I filed my first ACLU, you write, sponsored lawsuit, my first ACLU-sponsored lawsuit in November 1985 for Cowboy Snodgrass. His real name, a carpenter who worked just down the road. you want to give us an overview of the Cowboy Snodgrass case? What was that about? Well, their uh, Killington ski area was expanding, and um, uh, developers were building condos along the access road, and my client, Cowboy, was a carpenter, $9 an hour carpenter, and he, uh, there was a lot of opposition to, as part of Killington's expansion, they were going to do something called the spray irrigation method of waste disposal. You can figure out just from the name what that means, is spraying the stuff on the mountainsides uh, and uh, people didn't like that. Uh, so there was a bumper sticker that a couple of uh, legislators designed uh, that, uh, that uh, said, uh, Killington, where the affluent meet the effluent. And Cowboy <laughs> put that bumper sticker on his truck, for which uh, his developer boss fired him. <laughs> where the affluent meet the effluent. Okay, he gets yeah. fired. What would you do for him? Well, I, there was no First Amendment case because that requires some sort of state action uh, in some way uh, to, to trigger uh, the First Amendment. So I, I filed a lawsuit on the grounds that, uh, it, that his firing violated public policy because public policy favors free and open debate in this country, and it should be 
an exception to the termination at will rule, which many states have, which allow a boss to fire anybody for any reason or for no reason. So this public policy exception is what I argued and the, the court agreed with. Yeah, that was a great a great decision. That freedom of speech is so important that there's a public policy reason why we don't allow employers to prevent their employees from expressing themselves, even when it's a private employer and there's no governmental action. Let me ask you about another case you write about, uh, which is near and dear to my heart because of the South Hadley T-shirt case that I litigated for the ACLU. Uh, this is a case about a First Amendment hero, as you describe. Uh, Zachary, last name pronounced Giles? Giles, right. Okay. Tell us about that because you and I made quite our name for ourselves in different cases involving, of all things, T-shirts. Tell us about yours. Oh, okay. Well, Zach um, was a uh, a kid, I think, in sixth grade um, in Williamstown, Vermont, and he was wearing a T-shirt to class criticizing... um, George Bush II for alleged alleged alcohol abuse, uh, drug abuse, and uh, it said that uh, he was on a quest for world domination. And it showed um, depictions of cocaine lines and straws and marijuana uh, cigarettes and and, uh, martini glasses. This is all about Uh, this is all about President Bush, right? Yes. This was an overtly political T-shirt. Yes, it was, definitely. And um, so he wore that without incident until um, the um, cheerleading coach of the school, uh, who was the mother of one of Zach's uh, co-students, objected repeatedly. And so they gave Zach a choice of um, taking the shirt off or being uh, expelled and he for the day and he came back the next day wearing it and they kicked him out again and his final response was to he covered uh, the offending words uh, according to the school anyway with duct tape and the word uh, censored written over it um, so I filed suit against the uh, the school board and asking for uh, what's called a declaratory judgment that the federal court decides that this behavior by the school board and the principal and the vice principal was unconstitutional. That Zach had uh, the right to uh, express himself in that way. The excuse that they used was that they didn't want students looking at depictions it was like a cartoon of martini glasses, cocaine lines, or marijuana joints. And um, so that was their defense, that it violated the school's drug and alcohol policy. And the final chapter of the legal battle was what? Well, um, we lost in the district court. We appealed to the Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit in New York City, and uh, Sonia Sotomayor was one of the judges, although she didn't write the opinion. This is before she got into the U.S. Supreme Court. But they said uh, that Zach had the right to do what he did, um, and um, 
then there was an appeal to to the Supreme Court, which was denied. But in a companion case, they cited our case as authority uh, for what they did. I don't agree with that analysis, but anyway, it's it was, it was cited by the, the U.S. Supreme Court in the Alaska case where a student held up a sign saying, uh, Bong hits for Jesus. And they, uh, the Supreme Court said uh, that the school had the right to ban that. Right, but Talk the Supreme... Let me, let me interrupt no one second. Humor. Yeah, but they have no sense of humor is right. But what yeah. was important in the Bong hits for Jesus case is the Supreme Court... I mean, it's a nonsensical decision. It is no uh, structure or analysis that anyone could point to with any... Uh, pride of authorship. I mean, the Supreme Court should be embarrassed on how bad the reason the case is. But what they did say is that the school has the right to uh, prohibit endorsement and advertising for drugs. And your case was distinguished, and your win in the Second Circuit was distinguished, saying this was a political statement criticizing a president, and that a student has the absolute right to do. So that's that's correct. And they said. Uh, that the illustrations on the T-shirt were also constitutionally protected. There had been an earlier case um, where they, the Supreme Court had said that um, it was an advertisement for a lawyer who was um, bringing Dalkon Shield cases. And uh, he, he showed a, a photo of a Dalkon Shield in the ad. Let me ask you this, Steve. Um... You have retired now. You are yes. now what you describe a water truck driver, which yes. we're going to have you back on the show to talk about so, so that migrants That's can good, live. Because, you know, what's going down on in the border, I live down here, and mo- most people don't really know because what they hear is filtered so much by um, ideologues and people who know nothing about it, including the Democrats. Let me, let me, I'm going to read for our listeners uh, just two more sentences because we're going to have to run. We have a conversation coming up with uh, Reverend Michael McSherry. We're going to be talking about the historical Jesus in the second half of the show. But I want to read these couple sentences for this, con- the conclusion of this uh, discussion, this, this interview we're having with Steve Saltonstall. Here's what he writes near the end of the book. When I think back to my three years at Phillips Exeter Academy, I realized that bad as it was, with the hazing, forced Christianity, wasp white privilege, and loneliness, that it served a purpose, though not the purpose that my father or school had intended. Without the Exeter experience, I might have settled into a comfortable life in the Cambridge intellectual establishment, and that's not what happened. Instead, my rebellion against Exeter's elitist social Darwinist culture thrust me into a new universe. I walked the walk of the shoeless in their dirt floor homes. I shared the fears and nightmares of the hopeless and the lump and crushed by circumstances of birth or by exploitation or cruelty or racial prejudice. I lived among the, just talking about his environmental work, I lived among the wild animals who can't speak for themselves or save the forest they need to survive. I became a street-level guerrilla warrior defending the defenseless in an outlaw world. The title of the book is Renegade for Justice, Defending the Defenseless in an Outlaw World. The author is Stephen Saltonstall. It is available through the publisher at your local independent bookstore. If you absolutely must at Amazon, but I please order it through your independent bookstore. Steve Saltonstall, thank you for your time today. I hope you'll be back with us soon because I have a lot more I want to talk over with you. Okay, Bill. Thank you for having me. Thank you.
This is Bill Newman, WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. A West Springfield woman has died following a crash last night at I-90 in Charlton. Massachusetts State Police said the 27-year-old woman was driving in the breakdown lane when she hit a 2022 Freightliner that was temporarily stopped. Police believe the speed of the Honda Civic was a factor in the crash. The woman was trapped in her car after the crash and succumbed to her injuries. The driver of the truck is expected to be okay. Traffic in Northampton yesterday afternoon was busier than usual. A water main broke at the intersection of King Street and Damon Road around 1.40 p.m. The intersection was closed off as the city's DPW worked to remedy the situation. The cause of the water main break is still under investigation. The Amherst Police Department is warning residents about an increase in package thefts. Amherst Police said that thefts are occurring around the entire town, but especially concentrated in apartment complexes. UPS, USPS, and FedEx all have secure delivery options to help avoid theft. UPS offers signature-required delivery and adult signature-required delivery. Packages can also be shipped to a UPS access point. Two people were injured Wednesday after a shooting in Holyoke on Maple and Franklin Street. Holyoke Police Captain Matthew Moriarty tells 22 News a man's head was grazed and a woman was shot in the rear. Holyoke Police are still looking for suspects. Mostly cloudy today. Could be a few scattered sprinkles or flurries, especially this afternoon, a high of 36 to 40. Tonight, after 7 p.m., from west to east, steady rain and snow in the valley and snow in the hills. An overnight low of 30 to 36. Plan on a slushy morning commute on Friday with snow continuing in our western hills and a mixture of rain and snow continuing in valley locations with a high of 36 to 40. We'll dry out by Saturday morning. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. Por primera vez en un laboratorio, los investigadores pudieron generar más energía a partir de las reacciones de fusión que la que usaron para iniciar el proceso. La ganancia total fue de alrededor del 150%. El logro se produjo en la Instalación Nacional de Ignición, un complejo láser de 3.500 millones de dólares en el Laboratorio Nacional Lawrence Livermore en California. NIF ha luchado para cumplir su objetivo declarado de producir una reacción de fusión que genere más energía de la que consume. Pero eso cambió en la oscuridad de la noche del 5 de diciembre. Los investigadores usaron rayos láser para eliminar una pequeña bolita de combustible de hidrógeno. Los láseres produjeron 2.05 megajulios de energía y la pastilla liberó aproximadamente 3.15 megajulios. Esto es un hito importante, uno que en el campo de la ciencia de la fusión ha luchado por alcanzar durante más de medio siglo. Los investigadores dicen que la energía de fusión algún día podría proporcionar electricidad limpia y segura sin emisiones de gases de efecto invernadero. Pero incluso con este anuncio, los científicos independientes creen que ese sueño aún está a muchas décadas de distancia. En otras informaciones, una multitud de miles de personas se reunió en una fría tarde de martes para ver al presidente Joe Biden promulgar la legislación sobre el matrimonio homosexual, una ceremonia alegre que se vio atenuada por el telón de fondo de una reacción conservadora en curso sobre cuestiones de género. Esta ley y el amor que defiende dan un golpe contra el odio en todas sus formas, dijo Biden en el Jardín Sur de la Casa Blanca. Legisladores de ambos partidos asistieron a la ceremonia del martes, lo que refleja la creciente aceptación de las uniones entre personas del mismo sexo, una vez entre los temas más polémicos del país. 
Yo soy Johan Roshi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Hollywood Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. And this is our usual Thursday Reverend and the Rabbi segment. The Rabbi is on sabbatical, as you heard on this show. We have with us the Reverend Michael McSherry from Edwards Church. Michael McSherry is the senior minister at the Edwards Church here in Northampton. Quick bio for those of you who don't remember him being having been with us. He has been with us a number of times with us and will be a number of times with us and will be a regular on this segment. Uh, Michael McSherry, Reverend McSherry, graduated from Kenyon as a theater major. He worked as a stage manor and a computer program. He returned to study law at New York Law School, and then he worked as a corporate lawyer for 25 years. We have a lot of recovering lawyers on the show this week, as well as practicing ones as well. Uh, and then he went to Harvard Divinity School. Actually, he was still practicing when he went to Divinity School, and he received his uh, Master's in Divinity in 2005. He is the senior minister of the Edwards Church in Northampton, as I mentioned. Uh, Reverend McSherry, thank you so much for being with us. I want to share with you a couple of sentences from a wonderful piece, a guest column in today's Daily Hampshire Gazette by the Reverend Bert Marshall. And here's what Reverend Marshall says. The heart of the Christmas story lives beyond rational thought in a story world of imponderable death and beauty. Against all odds, it sings of throwing the mighty down from their thrones and lifting up the lowly of good news to the poor, release for the captives, and liberation for the oppressed. Even now, after all these years, Reverend Marshall writes, even now, after all these years, sometimes I can only stand and marvel at the whole improbable scene. Angels, unlikely parents, no room at the end, animals, a barn, shepherds, exotic strangers, a certain star. Rumors of a miraculous occurrence are announced first to farm workers, and then foreigners, there is a child at the center of all this. And then one or more sentence, if I might. The Reverend Bert Marshall writes this. I'm trying to break out of the little house of my ordinary world. Enough of explanations. Farewell for now to the theology and historical Jesus studies. I'm ready for the ancient winds to burst again out of the far mountains and across the plains. I stand braced against the edge of the world, waiting for a random gust to brush my face with incarnation. It's a, it's a beautiful piece. I'd like to ask you about the sentence where he says, enough of explanations, farewell for now to the theology and historical Jesus studies. How does that land with you? Uh, it, it, Bert is, first of all, I have to tell you that Bert um, is a fabulous pastor. On, on one of his sabbaticals, <clears throat> he memorized the Gospel of Mark and visits other churches and does a um, what can only be called um, a, a, a faithful and theatri theatrically vibrant recitation of the story of the entire Gospel of Mark in about an hour or so. And he does it with music, with guitar, with um, hand drums, and it 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 grabs you by the lapels and won't let you go. And it's a one-man show. It's just marvelous. Um, 
there's a, a late, uh, recently deceased um, theologian um, who said um, that he didn't realize until midlife um, that he'd give up, he'd given up the naive faith of his youth because all of his learning about the historical Jesus, about using modern methods of inquiring after the history behind base, you know, scripture, um, that he it kind of drained all the wonder and the mystery out of his encounter with the spiritual. And he had to reacquire what he called a post-critical naivete. So he learned to be a good critical thinker and use all the tools of modern scholarship, but it had drained his uh, spiritual life of any sense of wonder. And he had to to work to reacquire his taste for the poetic to 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 re-engage a post-critical naivete. That doesn't mean being fooled and uh, in the sense of being naive. That means being willing to relax the reins of reason just a little bit and let the um, let the thoroughbred run, right? Well, let, let me ask you this. What is meant by historical Jesus? I mean, Jesus was Jesus, um, but there's a historical Jesus and there is a religious Jesus and there's a differentiation uh, among that in your thinking or the thinking of your there is, church? There's, an there's a, a big school of thought, or at least an area of inquiry in modern Christian uh, theology. Uh, and it usually goes by the title something like the the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith. And it um, suggests that there is a, a bifurcation, a division between um, the Jesus Christ that's presented in scripture, in Christian scripture, um, and, uh, and a, a fellow in first century Israel, Palestine, who was a wandering teacher and prophet who sufficiently angered uh, the powers that be that they executed him and as a result of the encounter that he offered people with um with god with the transcendent with an urgent sense of um what the the prophet isaiah called you know the bringing bringing um sight to the blind and um, liberation to the captives. Um, you know, he was a liberator, and uh, that scared people. But he was more than a political liberator. He was a, a spiritual revivalist and um, invited people to live on the edge. Now, there, there, there's no way to know how, and there was in the 70s and think they finished their work in the early 80s, but I'm not sure, a group called The Jesus Project. And it was a group of historians. Uh, some were biblical scholars, some were purely so-called secular historians, and some um, religious, uh, Christian religious people who were very interested in protecting the, the sanctity of, of uh, scripture. They interrogated scripture to see if they could find out what statements by or about Jesus offered in the New Testament 
can be uh, taken as reliably historical using the standards of modern historicity and which statements are dubious in their historicity by modern standards. And at the end of the project, they, they published um, um, annotated copies of the New Testament um, with comments on what could be deemed more or less likely a statement by the person who lived and walked around uh, 2,000 years ago. There are, as I understand it, some uh, matters that do not affect faith, such as when was Jesus actually born? Uh, <laughs> well, well, let's stop there. Let's pause there for a moment. Uh, what, what is history, or what do these historical uh, inquiries tell us about when Jesus probably was born? The consensus is sometime in the spring. And uh, I, I, I read a poem uh, this week uh, shared with me by a friend. Um, it's a um, it's it's a it's a lovely uh, piece, um, and it it uh, hold on it's it's called um, "Remembering That It Happened Once" by Wendell Berry, and in it he refers to the birth happening in April. Um, Does and I, I, I just offer you that because if you go and read the Wendell Berry poem, you'll see he was um, suggesting something quite like what Bert is suggesting in today's Daily Hampshire Gazette. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, Michael McSherry, are you still there? Have we lost you? I hope not. Oh, dear. Okay. We're going to take a quick break then. We're going to come back, and I want to ask Michael McSherry. We'll get him back on our phone or on our Skype connection. And I want to ask about whether the differences between historical Jesus and the Jesus of faith actually affect faith in some way. We'll be right back. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Hearing the verdict and hearing the words racial animus were extremely painful for certainly for myself and for the women and men of the Greenfield Police Department who really do go to work every day to serve the people of Greenfield. 1015-1400-1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. Sipping and shopping and strolling tonight in downtown Amherst. It's a party all over town. Restaurants doing dinner deals. Downtown merchants all aglow. There's a maker's market inside the Drake with a bar. Horse-drawn carriage rides through town. And if you have so much fun, it wears you out, which is very likely because that's the kind of fun this is going to be. Book a room at the Inn on Boltwood for only $99. Sip and shop and stroll. Who's ready to party? Tonight, 5 to 9 in downtown Amherst. I'm Tony Warden, President and Chief Executive Officer of Greenfield Cooperative Bank. I want to wish everyone a happy holiday season and a safe and healthy new year. Hi, this is Teresa from the 63 Federal Street Office of Greenfield Cooperative Bank. I would like to wish all of our customers and their families a Christmas that's merry and bright 
and a happy new year filled with love, health, and happiness. Hi, this is Mandy. And this is Rachelle from From Greenfield Greenfield Cooperative Bank, Bank, wishing you and yours a Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, and all the other holidays you may celebrate this season. Hi, this is Jane Wolf, Senior Vice President of Residential Lending at Greenfield Cooperative Bank. I'd like to wish you and your family a wonderful holiday season and a prosperous new year. Hello, I'm James Alexander, Vice President and Commercial Lender located in Shelburne Falls. I want to wish everyone a happy and safe holiday season from the Greenfield Cooperative Bank. This is Chelsea. And this is Maggie. From the Commercial Loan Department. We want to wish our family, friends, and customers a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. 586-1000. Good phone number, right? It's the number Whalen Insurance got when we opened in 1961. It's still our number more than 60 years later. If you need an insurance quote or have a claim, just call 586-1000. We answer the phone, ready to help. That's our pledge to you, until now. Now when you call, we'll answer. And if it's something clerical or routine, like an address change, we're going to transfer you to the Arbella Insurance Call Center in Quincy. You'll be connected with a real person there, too. You won't be entering your policy number on the dial pad. The Arbella Call Center. I told myself Whalen Insurance would never do this, but insurance agent friends all over New England tell me it actually works really well. So we're going to try it. And if it doesn't work well, I'm sure you'll let us know by calling 586-1000. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. In partnership with Arbella Insurance. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation on this Reverend and the Rabbi segment with the Reverend Michael McSherry, Senior Minister at the Edwards Church in Northampton. The question I want to pose to you, Michael, is does the information that we think or you think uh, exists with regard to historical Jesus, does it affect your your religious beliefs? Does it affect how many people or feel about uh, the Jesus of faith, the Jesus that is uh, considered the, the Son of God, the Messiah uh, for Christians? Tell us about how you reconcile, how you square that circle. I'll tell you how I square that circle. First, I need to acknowledge that um, what's written in Scripture is a combination of of um, uh, people and events that are described there that may or may not be historical in the sense that if someone had been wandering around with a video camera 2,000 years ago, what you see on video would comport with what is described in scripture. I think some of it is probably true and some of it may be entirely made up or even changed from what was accurate because people 2,000 years ago had a different sense of um, what mattered when they were telling a good story. And they would emphasize telling a good story over um, what we call historical accuracy because they thought it was more important to convey the substance of what was important in the story. So um, the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke provide um, different family tree histories um, for the family history of Jesus. If you compare them, they don't agree. Which one's true? I don't know. Does it really matter? I don't think so, because each author was 
giving Jesus a, a history that goes back to or beyond David so that they could buttress the claims that he was the Messiah. Um, how much does, well, I took a wonderful course at Harvard Divinity School from a, one of the giants of 20th century uh, biblical studies, Helmut Kester. The title of the course was The Historical Jesus. And at the end of 12 to 14 weeks studying with Professor Kester, I knew what I, 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 I knew that um, you could never get all the way to the bottom of this if you were looking for historical proof of what mattered to your faith. You know, the Christian Bible um, is offered to anyone, but it is something that um, people who who draw their inspiration and their um, their primary access to God through Christian metaphor, Christian images, and the Christian story um, as a way to approach, I would say. I mean, it was written by people who thought that Jesus was very important because he had uh, stirred in people who listened to him and followed him an awareness of the presence of God and a commitment to a way of living um, that was, as best as one could tell, consistent with the way the source of life um, would have us live more justly, more lovingly, and so forth. Well, that, what you're saying makes a lot of sense to me, and it reminds me of this line from a lawyer, here we go again, uh, but quoted by Jonathan Haar in his book, A Civil Action, where the lawyer says, the truth, you want the truth, is the truth is at the bottom of a bottomless pit. And I think that really does... Really? It, it's almost theological in its... In its, in its uh, really? So... I hear talk... I'm not quite sure. <laughs> Technology has failed us many times, but I'm not sure what is going on at the moment. I must say, let's see if we can get Michael McSherry back for a minute. Michael, you with us? Wait, I'm. I think I'm with you. Can you hear me? Now we can. Sure. Okay. So, t tell us. You preach. You preach from the the what in the Christian tradition is called the New Testament or the Christian Bible every week. What happens when you come across something and you say that's probably not accurate how, how does that how does that affect you and what you're telling your congregation well i start by by asking uh a question that one of my uh professors suggested that we always asked what difference does it make you know how relevant is it uh you know, did jesus turn water into wine you know um and to you, does it matter? Um, no, it doesn't matter to me, to the larger message, whether Jesus uh, turned large jugs of water into high quality wine um, as a party trick at a wedding feast. Um, what matters to me, let's see, what, 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 what is that asking us to believe? It's asking us to believe that um, with God, all things are possible. And, well, we've got 20 seconds left. 
Is that sort of the final? Is that your 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 take home on the differences and how you reconcile the differences? Uh, it doesn't much matter. Oh no, it it matters a great deal because there are some things you can't say scripture means, <coughs> but there's a lot you can say it means. We're going to leave it there. We've been speaking with Michael McSherry. He is the senior minister at the Edwards Church here in Northampton. We appreciate your time. Thank you so very much. Thank you, Bill. Be well. is Bill Newman, WHMP. In this, the season of thanks and giving, United Way of Franklin and Hampshire Region wants to remind you to support the organizations and people who are doing the hard work of making our community a better place. Please consider supporting a local nonprofit with a tax-deductible gift this December. If you're not sure how to help, go to uw-fh.org to find a list of United Way vetted partner agencies. The United Way of the Franklin and Hampshire Region asks you to help make the Valley a happier, healthier, and more equitable place for everyone. WHMP is looking for organizations that regularly distribute information about employment opportunities to job applicants or have job applicants to refer. If your organization would like to receive notification of job vacancies at our station, please notify us at Careers, WHMP Radio, 15 Hampton Avenue, Northampton, Massachusetts, 01060, phone number 413-586-7400, or email jobs at whmp.com. Saga Communications is an equal opportunity Live employer and, and encourages minorities and in the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. A Northampton Radio Group Station. 